this podcast from the Triple Helix Cambridge May Café Scientifique event, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month's Café Scientifique looked into the growing concern of obesity, something which is greatly affecting the developed world. And the area investigated was the role of our genes. Event speaker Dr Giles Yeo from the Institute of Metabolic Science at the University of Cambridge asked the question, are my genes to blame when my genes don't fit? So to find out the answer, I spoke to Giles before the event. Um, I'm going to be talking about genetics of obesity, but I study genetics of obesity not only to study genetics of obesity, but actually to try and understand the pathways and mechanisms controlling food intake. And if you know and understand the pathways um, controlling food intake, then maybe we can begin to try and tackle the problems we have with obesity today. Now, what is the current occurrence of obesity here in the UK? I would probably say something like uh, 20% of um, UK adults are probably considered obese. Maybe something close to 30% are considered um, overweight. And so how do you set about looking into the possible genetics behind this obesity? There are actually two types of genetics to actually, to actually think about. When I'm talking about the 30% of people that are overweight and the 20% are obesity, I'm talking really about what they call polygenic obesity, regular standard obesity, nothing severe. And that's one, one, side of, one side of the problem that we're trying to deal with. What we actually work on is extreme obesity, really, really, really obese people. And the reason we are doing that is because if you're really, really, really obese, and if you get obese really, really young, the whole thought is there must be something wrong genetically in terms of a disease. And if we understand single genes that actually cause severe obesity, it's easy then to try and understand and identify pathways. So there are two strands, like I said. We try and look at severe, very, very rare cases to try and identify individual molecules which could cause obesity and hopefully then inform us about why regular human beings, regular people, get slightly chubby um, and are more likely to gain weight than others. So um, do you look into the fact then that, that certain genes could lead to obesity, but also just how our bodies regulate food intake so that our environment has changed over time and so how that could be playing a role as well? Yep, it's, it's definitely something where, you know, the, the, the question is always, always in my genes, it, why am I obese, why am I fat? And the reason one is fat and one is obese is because you eat too much. The question, however, is why you actually eat too much. That's the question, and that's the question why we, what we actually study. Why we eat too much? And when we actually eat food, what do we actually do with the individual calories? What do we do with it? Do we burn it? Do we store it? And what do you actually do, do with it? And that's also very strongly genetically determined. So why do we eat too much, and what does happen to the food that we intake? It's a very good question. One would actually say that the obesity epidemic that's going on right now is the normal response to the environment in which we're being put in, this cafeteria Western diet. You can imagine way long time ago, you know, you're in the, in the Serengeti or what, or what have you, when there were situations of famine and plenty. And what would happen is when there was plenty, you killed an antelope or something, you are then programmed to eat as much of it as you can because you don't know when your next antelope is going to actually be there. So imagine that we are actually in a situation now where we have plenty of antelope and never any more famine. And so our brains are hardwired to eat as much as we can when we see it to prepare ourselves for the famine, which is never ever going to come. Built within that, however, some people are going to eat more and some people are going to eat less when given the unlimited number of antelope. 
And is that aspect then what's down to our genes? Yes, without a doubt. So what we always say is one of these, you become obese because you eat too much. How obese you become, that's genetically determined. So how do you actually set about studying groups of people then in order to identify particular genes that play a role in this? Well, we study, we study people. We also study, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, we also study animals. Okay? We have animal models of obesity, which are obviously easier to handle and easier to see. But these groups of patients that we study are severely, severely obese, and then we screen genes in them. We look to see, well, in specific genes, we have either candidate genes or we have specific things which may, we may think are interesting, and we actually screen them to see, are there any mutations in them which actually cause obesity? And if we do find um, some of these genes. We're then able to work on them to determine what they do, what they don't do, and if you have the mutation, you know how, how that could actually cause the problems that you have with, with obesity. And so with your work to date, what genes have you managed to identify or what mutations have you identified that do play a role in obesity? I've been working on, on um, genetics of obesity and now mechanisms of obesity for 12 years, and I'm a genetics person, but as a group, Myself, Professor Rahli, uh, Dr. Faruqi, who had, we, we're a crew that we actually work together, we've identified the causes of um, probably about seven to eight different genes, which all involve the communication between your fat. Okay, and what happens is your fat secretes these molecules which tell your brain how much fat there is. The molecule is leptin, and leptin signals to the brain. And then what then happens, everything else happens within the brain, as far as we know, okay? And there are this other bunch of molecules called melanocortins, and melanocortins go on to actually reduce food intake, okay? Now, if you lack any of those molecules in, in terms of as, as a genetic mutation, you become severely obese, either if you're a mouse, you're a human, or you're any other mammalian creature. And well, what percentage of people that are obese do you expect to have these particular mutations then? Okay, leptin, extremely rare. I think we've probably only found um, six or seven families in the world to date, and there's, there's lots of us. The melanocortins, now that is more interesting. I would hazard a guess, and this is just, this is just a guess based on the numbers we have, 1% of the population probably has potentially mutations in them causing obesity. Now, clearly, that's only 1%. There are a lot more obese um, um, people. So I don't think this is the answer to everything. But it opens up a new and important, or not new anymore, but an important pathway controlling food intake. So I probably would imagine around 1% of the general population probably have mutations somewhere in this pathway that might cause their obesity. These pure genetic, what we call monogenic, single gene defects which cause the obesity, they're just that. They're diseases. They're like muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis. You have the gene, you have the disease. It's the same thing that you have the gene, you're going to become obese. So now, having worked all of this out... What can now be done to hopefully tackle the problem of obesity in the Western world or what's the next step essentially to use this information? I think there is only at the moment, from what we know, one 100% way of curing obesity. Unfortunately, it's to eat less and exercise more. That is good advice, but it's advice that clearly is not, not working. Okay? The work that we're actually doing at the moment in order to try and understand this is very basic research. Although we are identifying novel molecules, novel receptors that can be targeted, which pharmaceutical companies are clearly targeting, are we ever going to find a magic bullet? No, is the answer. Because I think because of our genetic background, we're going to respond differently to different things wherever we target. So the, the work we're, we're doing is probably a little bit away from trying to identify any potential therapeutic that will successfully help you lose weight and then help you keep the weight off. So what would you summarise as the main aims of your current research then? To understand, better understand the pathways controlling food intake. Because until you actually understand it well, and we don't actually know it that well, 
we can't tackle problems with it. So that the main aim at the moment is still we use obesity as a tool to study the pathways controlling food intake. But in order to understand the pathways controlling food intake, we can then turn back and see if we can actually handle obesity. That was Dr Giles Yeo from the Institute of Metabolic Science at the University of Cambridge, discussing how, although environment plays a key role in our weight gain, the extent of our weight to the level of obesity could be down to our genes. Now, as usual, after the event, we opened up the floor to any audience questions. My dad's family strain were pretty skinny. My mother's strain were definitely obese. Okay, I came out somewhere about the middle, but through, I believe, um, I think I've got the message, social issues, my development has caused me to eat better, to eat far too much, and I've kind of grown beyond um, their type of environment, which, when I was a kid, caused me to be pretty trim, but now I'm a fat pig. There are a number of different issues there, 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 yeah. there to answer, okay? I still will go. There are clearly going to be envir- environmental changes. But if you actually... I don't know if you guys watch some of these um, documentaries that are there. And there was this story there of the twins that were split mm. apart at birth for whatever reason, two very hyperactive American women, one of whom was raised as a carnivorous Catholic and the other one was raised as a vegetarian Jew, okay? But they never knew each other. They were, they were so-and-so and so-and-so. And then, you know, one day on Oprah, they met. And there they were. Miss Carnivorous Catholic and Miss Vegetarian Jew were plus or minus a kilogram from each other. So what I would like to say is that, yes, I think, I think there is going to be social and environmental factors in it. But the, the genes will, will actually inform you to a very large degree, not 100%, not 100%, okay, to how you respond to to the environment and how much you are likely to eat. Remember, this is over a lifetime. However, you were born in the war, the interuterine environment. What actually happens when you're in there? Now, you might have to remember that when you're in the womb, you're also being exposed to environmental factors. Now, clearly, your mum's either eating well, not well. Is she smoking? Is she not? Is it scary? Is it stressful? In a war, it's stressful. In a war, it's stressful and you're not eating enough, okay? Right. So what happens is when you're in there, you might imagine that you would have evolved pathways to say, dude, this is not a good world I'm going to be being popped up into, okay? Even though the war happened over a, over a fixed period of time and ended, thank goodness, right? And then out you plop, and then you are programmed to be a situation, okay, guys... Tough world to live in here, okay? There's not going to be a lot to eat. It's going to be really stressful. And there is some level of adaptation beyond genetics. Now, mm-hmm. that is something where, where it is what they call the interuterine programming that actually happens, which actually then mixes together with the genetics. It's part of the environment. And there is a study, for example, called the Dutch famine. Now, this famine happened over, I think it was only six months, don't, don't quote me, I don't know exactly, about six months or eight months or something like that. It was within the gest- human gestational period. It happened just after the war in which there was a famine, war-induced, okay? The war had ended and there was a famine. And so there were a bunch of women who suddenly had their protein levels halved or, 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 or something like that. And they were then able to follow these kids, okay? Compared to kids which were born after that small six-month window where they were fine and healthy, and what happened was the kids who were into uterine during that period of famine, so the mothers ate less and less protein, actually were more prone to getting uh, uh, obesity 
diabetes mm. and what have you on a population level. Because they came out thinking, okay, I've been programmed to think this is a world that's going to be tough to live in. I'm going to need to be thrifty. I'm going to need to be efficient. Really, I'd like to expand on that last point. When you were talking about the role of genetics, you emphasised the influence on intake and how much people eat. But how much does genetics also influence things like metabolic rate and adjustment of metabolic rate when you increase your diet intake and so on? Okay, so if you actually take a look at energy expenditure as a whole, if you take energy expenditure and look at, look at us, we can actually split that into three different types of energy expenditure, okay? There's basal metabolic rate, what we need to survive and, 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 and kick about. It's a rate we can't do anything about, okay, because it's genetically predetermined. And yes... There is some movement over that metabolic rate, but that metabolic rate tends to be the fatter you are, the higher it is, because you need to actually keep yourself alive. The more muscle you have, the higher that is. And that is going to be actually determined by body size. There is physical activity, exercise, how much you actually burn and how much you actually do things. And then there's, there is diet or cold-induced thermogenesis, which means that if you eat, start to sweat, okay? Your body starts to warm up in order to actually do, do the deal. Or if you're cold, you actually start to shiver more. And those are the three major types of, of energy expenditure. We can only modify one of that, and that is physical activity, okay? All the rest is actually pretty, I would say 75, 70 to 75% of our energy expenditure is untouchable by us. We can't do anything about that. Those are genetically determined and will give you some, some leeway. It's, it's only the exercise. The problem is, so far, to date, in terms of our, when we actually are looking at humans with mutations causing severe, severe obesity, okay, we have only found mutations affecting food intake to become severely obese, okay? But clearly, there's going to need to be a strong genetic element in terms of the um, energy expenditure as well. How much can a mutation in an energy expenditure gene cause you to become severely obese? Probably unlikely. Is there a predisposition in a few percentage points, given what I showed you, seven calories a day? Could you burn seven calories more than someone else? Probably so, yes. And so that might explain the few kilograms of difference that is there, but probably would not explain you gaining that much weight. You, 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 need, you need to be eating too much. Would you like to comment on the fairly recent research in Sweden where the grandchildren of a generation that survived or endured famine were found to be more prone to obesity than their parents. My argument there, and thinking about things, is there is still the genetic influence from the grandparents because you share that. that. So your parent has had the environment into uterine with your, grandpa your, 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 your grandparent, okay? And whatever changes has occurred there is then being able to be passed on. Once again, this is a hypothesis. I don't, I don't have any solid data to show. But you cannot imagine that a great-grandchild in which that has happened, the effect is going gonna, is gonna to be there anymore. So my, my answer to that, in which this is just a hand-waving exercise because I don't know what it is, is that is because they share the, the, the one person that was in the room, your mom or, your, or, or, the, or the daughter or the son, and that chain has somehow managed to be passed on to, to the grandchild. Uh, no doubt there's a genetic influence in obesity and uh, weight gain. But you, met, you mentioned quite a bold statement earlier that there's a greater genetic influence on obesity and weight gain than there is in height. So how could they, they actually distinguish the uh, genetic influence on weight gain away from the kind of nurture effects of, let's say, an overweight parent overfeeding their child and therefore the child having larger fat stores and ultimately having being obesity, having a, being obese in later life? 
Okay, the twin and adoption studies had two, had two elements to it. It had the regular standard twins, and, you know, twins are very scientifically valuable resource. On the other side, on the not-so-nice side, there are also a lot of twins which come up, born, and for some reason in life, like those, like the carnivorous Catholic and the vegetarian Jew, are split apart at birth. Why? I have no idea. It's an awful world war. You might wonder, how many of these kids are there? There are quite a few, thousands, okay? And someone, and someone has made their life work to actually go and collect these twins who were split apart at birth, raised in different countries, different cultures, different religions, okay, and brought them back together again. And even doing that, even doing that, so in other words, these are clones now, genetically identified, but completely different upbringing and completely different, um, and they still have pretty much the same body weight, plus or minus a couple of kilos here and there. Mm. And so that is the argument for against that. Of course, then playing devil's advocate, they did share the same womb. So how much of that was actually predetermined in the womb? How do we control food intake? Now let's leave aside the genetics inside, just in terms of just straight biology. You can imagine, okay, there are going to be two major areas of your body, three major areas, who are very interested in what you've eaten. Okay? There is the short-term control, the gut. Now clearly when you're actually eating and your body is very, very well-tuned and, 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 and well-designed to inform your brain what's going on as it goes down. So as it enters, food enters your esophagus, things will start happening. As it hits the stomach, your stomach actually not only knows there's stuff going in there, it knows the calorie content, it knows how much protein, fat, carbohydrates that's going in there, and it then starts secreting stuff to your brain. It'll say, okay, 200 calories, 50% fat, 20% protein, blah, 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 okay? But nonetheless, that's, that, that's, what, that's, what actually, that's what actually goes on. However, this is short-term. It regulates short-term food intake. And, as any government should know, trying to govern on short-terminism is never good. And so you then need the balance of the long-term, the long-term stores, which is your fat, which clearly doesn't disappear overnight, okay? Your fat's going to be there for months and months on end. That secretes leptin and other signals, informing your brain of a situation. So, okay, we're now in a situation where I've had 200 calories in my stomach, 50% fat, blah, blah, blah. I know I have right now 25% body fat, and then it does some complex algorithm. All of the signals to the brain, there's some complex algorithm that goes in there, which is where I spend my time, actually. I'm, I'm a north-of-the-neck kind of guy. I look at brain control of food intake, and that is where the business end of controlling your food intake actually happens. Now, how much of this is genetically determined? I don't have time to go into leptin. I've given you examples, but there are other examples here, which if you mutate, if you go in and go, okay, you end up being severely obese because you you lack the ability to feel full. I have a question again about the height and weight and how um, inheritable they are. So I remember like one professor of mine years ago was like, asked us to think what humans are selecting for. And I've kept this question in my mind and the only thing I found evidence for was height. So apparently taller men are more likely to have offspring. So height is selected for in human evolution. So do you think or there's some evidence for it. Do you think that we're selecting for fatter oh, people? You see, the problem with height thing is you are when you're choosing partners and whatever, you're choosing, there's one very selfish reason, who's going to give me the offspring that will survive the most. Okay, Height is one of them because they'll have ability to go after the antelope and what have you. Okay, Ladies with the bigger bits and what have you for all the various reasons, hips, sort of stuff come out, you know, and all, and all kinds of things. But selection for the obesity keeps you alive. The problem is if the selection pressure is the famine, and every famine that comes along, it kind of goes, okay, 
then what then happens? It's it's us. Who, who are able to actually pack in the food in order to survive. That's the selection pressure. Are you, so when you're talk, talking about the uterine environment, uh -huh. um, are, do, does this imply that, in fact, the influence of the mother on obesity is much greater than... Uh, the genetic influence of a mother is much greater than the father? Yes, I think if you actually do the math in that way, biologically, you share 50% of your genetic material, but the mother has the intrauterine environment. So I can understand a, a number of the syndromes, like Prader-Willi syndrome is genetically determined and children, let's say, don't express a certain degree of proteins or whatever. Uh, that results them in fundamentally becoming obese and having the desire for food. Is there some middle ground whereby some people produce more of, uh, of a certain hormone or more of a certain protein and some people produce uh, even more or even less than the other person? Yes, I think we are the middle ground, and I think that's what the situation is. Now, how much do we know about it is what we're actually studying. So, you know, we have the major problem with trying to determine that is obesity is an endpoint in which you eat too much. The issue is why you eat too much, and I would argue that it is, for the vast majority of us, it's not one reason or another, but a whole host of different reasons, possibly rare reasons, in each of the individuals that, are, as a whole actually gives this problem. So trying to identify the one or two or three things that happen is difficult. But yes, there is evidence, for example... Uh, mm -hmm. I'll leave one more question. Yeah. So if we, at birth, if we can determine the concentration for a, a child of these certain levels of hormones and proteins, do you think it's feasible in the future to determine the ultimate weight gain or the acceptability uh, of weight gain for that individual? You see, what you're talking about there is the $64 million gold nugget. The biomarker, so the question there is not only for babies, it's, the, it's for us. Can you, from a simple test, blood or otherwise, say that this person is going to be this weight and therefore you need to do it? I would argue that we have a pretty damn good idea based on your parents. Now, that is just my, that is just my, my idea. Now, how much you're going to... That clearly is entirely uh, environmentally determined. But you can have a pretty good idea on whether or not a child is going to become obese or not based on how big, how big the parents are. In terms of taking a blood test and doing, I think there are a lot of people trying to understand what circulating factors, the ratios and all the circulating factors... Can that tell us anything in the future? I think a lot is known about what happens when you're obese and when you're not obese. Can we identify what the drug industry called biomarkers in order to do that? Not yet. Not yet. Is it possible? I don't know. So we can't quite say yet if we can predict at birth our likeliness to be obese. But it's certainly one way this knowledge could take us. But as Giles pointed out, this research itself is still in its infancy and there's a lot more to find out. Now, after the event, I caught up with some audience members to find out their thoughts. I think I actually learned some new things about it. Um, I think I had my opinion, but um, I wouldn't have thought that the influence of genes would be that high. Um, yeah. It's very interesting uh, how they've got evidence to say that you know it, it is uh, you know when you're feeling hungry when you want to eat more food it's probably linked to how things were when you were in a womb. I mean that's very interesting. That's something I didn't know. I thought he gave a lovely lecture, very vibrant and absolutely terrific to listen to him. However, I did have a question um, in. Many groups in South Africa, the, the diets are very, very poor. And yet the women are really big, big women. 
And um, the men in that in the groups there are quite skinny. Where do the genes come in here? But yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a few things I didn't know previously. Yeah, it's great, really good. He's a really great speaker and very enthusiastic and passionate and very funny as well. So nice talk, yeah. So thumbs up to Giles as a speaker, but perhaps still a few uncertainties about how much our genes really are to blame. Now that's pretty much it for this month's podcast. But before we go, here's one of the Café Scientifique organisers, Dr Dervalig Glynn, to give us a heads up on what to expect next month. So next month we have Dr Luke Clark from the Department of Experimental Psychology and he will be speaking on gambling and the brain. And that will be on the 16th of June here at the Larkham Studio at the ADC at 7.30pm. And you can find out more about that event online at cafescientifique.org forward slash Cambridge. So come along in June to find out more about the effects of gambling on our brains. It may perhaps be worth a visit if you're off on holiday to Las Vegas this summer. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council. And this podcast was brought to you by me, Mira Senthi Lingam, from thenakedscientist.com.